0: Today, on The Voice of Prophecy, what it means to get stranded in an airport, what that has to do with 19th century America, and what that has to do with your future. You know, I I wonder, is there anything more frustrating than boarding a plane only to sit on the tarmac for a couple of hours because of bad weather and then get told the flight's going nowhere? Because now it's late at night, you have to find a hotel, and you've got to hope there's still a room left somewhere, and then you have to get up at three in the morning and try it all again. Now, maybe I'm the only person that ever happens to, because there are some weeks it almost seems like I was born with this special gift for getting stranded in an airport, getting four hours sleep, four nights in a row, and then going back to the airport early in the morning, hoping desperately that this time I'm actually going to get on a flight. You know, jokingly, I I used to tell my coworkers it must be their fault. If they weren't traveling with me on the same plane, then things would go smoothly, But then this last winter, I had a week that made it obvious they weren't the problem. It's just me. For a solid two weeks, I got stranded in every city I went to. I got stuck in Salt Lake City. I got stuck in Denver. I got stuck in Toronto. I got stuck in Detroit. I got stuck in Minneapolis. And honestly, Minneapolis is the one that really surprised me because you'd think if there's one place in America where they should be able to handle winter, it would be Minneapolis. But I actually got stuck there for almost two days. So maybe it is me. I mean, maybe if you see me on your flight, you should turn around and get back off because chances are your plane's not going anywhere. Just go rebook a flight right away. And of course, I'm, I'm kidding. I don't really believe in bad luck, so please don't write me letters about being superstitious. I'm not, I'm just kind of kidding. I guess I'm just getting old and crotchety and I'm getting sick of flying. I don't know about you, but I don't think there's anything quite as deflating as getting to the airport early, boarding your flight on time, and then getting stuck on the tarmac for hours on end in this tiny seat that seems like it was made for leprechauns. I mean, don't get me wrong, this is still better than our ancestors had it because if they got stranded by the snow, it was in a wagon train on the way to Oregon and they had to eat their relatives instead of the little bags of peanuts. And the precious few survivors from the Donner Party didn't actually come back down till the following spring. So I guess there's not that much to complain about because even the longest delay It's still a modern miracle by comparison to the world our grandparents lived in. I mean, they almost never got on planes. In fact, my grandparents actually emigrated to Canada by ship. So you and I, yeah, we still have it better. But when you've been traveling for a week or two and you're in a different city every day and when the last night's flight gets in at midnight and you have to get up at three in the morning to catch the next plane and then you board that plane to find out you're not going home, that is deflating maybe not the first time, maybe not the second time, but the fifth time, yeah, it starts getting to you. But it's nowhere near as deflating as what happened to this guy I read about a few years ago. A guy who got himself granted a leave of absence from the front lines of World War II. He'd been sleeping in the muddy trenches for who knows how long. He had a bad case of foot rot. He had to shave his head to get rid of the lice. And he hadn't had a bath or a shower in months. So you can imagine how good it must have felt to get on a train that was headed away from the front. You can imagine how good it felt when that train pulled away from the station and started driving him away from the war. He must have been like, oh, pinch me. Is this real? Am I really leaving? And then just a few stops down the track, just a few towns away, they suddenly turn everybody around. They send them back. Because apparently, things had changed at the front, and they needed all hands on deck right now. So the leaves were canceled, and now this guy, I think his name was Marty, Marty found himself headed back to the front without as much as one night in a real bed. So talk about depressing or despondent. So I guess when you put it in perspective, I'll take a snowy flight delay any time over World War II, and... I'll take a snowy flight delay any day over what happened to a guy by the name of Merhan Nasari. Now, I hope I'm pronouncing his name correctly. He was from Iran. He was an Iranian national who went to school in Britain in 1974. And while he was at school, his dad dies, and so he runs out of money. And what do you do when you run out of money? You go back home. So, Mr. Nasseri went back to Iran, and like so many other college students, he managed to get caught up in those protests against the Shah of Iran in 1977. That was the year I think that Elvis died. I'm in the third grade. It's 1977. And Mr. Nasseri suddenly finds himself without a home. They kick him out of the country. He's deported. So he spends the next four years backpacking across Europe, looking for some country that would take him in. And finally, in 1981, he was accepted as a political refugee in Belgium, and you would think that would be the end of the story. Except that in 1988, he suddenly gets this idea that he might have a claim on British citizenship, so he tries to go to England. And the problem with that is that someone stole his briefcase in the Paris train station, so he loses all his refugee papers and now he has no ID. But no problem, he decides to board a plane for Heathrow anyway, and of course, when he lands, the English turn him away for having no papers. So he flies back to Paris, or I guess he's actually deported to Paris, and the French arrest him for illegal entry. The problem is, he has no papers, so they don't know where to send him. And he takes up residence in a red plastic chair in Terminal 3 at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Well, the immigration officials work on his case. And of course, you know the government doesn't move fast, so his case took a while. In fact, it took almost two decades. That's right, you, you heard me right. He was stranded for two decades. Now, when I first heard this story a few years ago, I, I had trouble believing it. So I actually called the airport and I asked them there. And they said, oh yeah, he's here, he lives here. So, so I tried to page him and get him to come to the phone, but he wouldn't do it. So I didn't speak to him, but I knew he was there. He was really there for almost 20 years. He actually lived in the airport while they tried to figure out his case. So if you felt sorry for Edward Snowden because he spent a month in the lounge in the airport, a month, man, that's nothing compared to this guy. Snowden's captivity is almost a holiday by comparison. Just try to imagine this, getting stuck in an airport for years I mean, if I get stuck there for a day, even one night, I get a little stir-crazy, but decades? How do you live in an airport for decades? Well, apparently, Mr. Nasri developed a routine. He waited till the last flight of the night was finished so he could go and wash up in the public restroom. And then he did the same thing in the morning before the flights began again. And then he spent another day sitting in a red plastic chair, and he sat there and sat there until 1992, when finally the French courts determined that he was a political refugee and they could not deport him. So you'd think that would be the end of the story. Four years in the airport, hey, go live in Paris. Except that's not what happened. They wouldn't let him out of the airport because they wouldn't give him a visa. They couldn't deport him, but they wouldn't set him free. And I guess it's at that point when Belgium suddenly says, look, we'll give him new papers, but he has to come in person and get them. And France says, there's no way. He can't leave our country unless he has papers. So now he's a victim of a squabble between two countries. And Belgium finally just changes his mind and said, look, you left, your problem, you can't come back. So believe it or not, he keeps living in the airport until 1995 when Belgium suddenly changes its mind again and says, okay, you can come back, but you're going to have to live under the supervision of a social worker. And that's when this guy loses it. He doesn't want to go back and live that way. He says, I'm not going back. Not if they're going to treat me like that. So he stays in the airport. And I'm not making this up. He stays in the airport and starts filling in paperwork for a visa to Britain. In fact, he fills in so much paperwork that the airport starts calling him Sir Alfred because he wants to go to England. And of course, the British didn't take him. So he kept on living there and kept on living there year after year after year. And when I come back from this break, I'll tell you what happened to him and what it has to do with 19th century America and what it has to do with you.
1: Do you feel as if you have more questions than answers in your life? Where is God when people suffer? Can I find real happiness? And is there any hope for our chaotic world? Are you searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or pick up the phone and call us at 888-888. Four five six seven nine two two for your free Discover Bible guides. Eight 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 four five six seven nine two two. Study online on our secure website, or have the free lessons mailed right to your home. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions.
0: And we're back from the break, and we're talking about Murhan Nasri the Iranian national who lived in the Paris airport for almost two decades. He got stranded there in 1988 after losing his papers en route to England, and he stayed until 2006 when his health finally fell apart and they took him to a hospital. So try to imagine the disappointment of thinking that you're on your way to a new life in England, but instead you get turned around and you live in the airport instead. I know how frustrated I am when there's a four-hour flight delay, but two decades? It kind of reminds me of a group that made the headlines in the 19th century after a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller started preaching the second coming of Christ. He basically did the same thing that Harold Camping did a few years ago. He, he predicted the end of the world, except that I've come to believe that Mr. Miller's mistake was by far a more innocent one. Not, not that Harold Camping was an innocent, just that William Miller's mistake is far more understandable. You see, after William Miller read through the Bible very carefully, one verse at a time, never going any faster than he could actually understand what he was reading, he came to the conclusion that the world would probably end in 1843. And then after a few more calculations, he moved that date to 1844. And of course it was a mistake. But I've got to say... After reading Miller's books, to me he doesn't sound like a crackpot. I thought he might, but he doesn't. His logic is clear, his arguments are rational, and his Christianity is solid. He wasn't a whacked-out cult leader. But where he basically went wrong was when he took a prophetic passage from Daniel chapter 8 and he assigned it to the wrong event. He assumed with most Christians of his day that when the Bible says the sanctuary would be cleansed, it meant that Jesus would come and cleanse this earth by fire. And of course, that's not what it means. I mean, if you look at the passage carefully, it's actually a reference to judgment because the language reflects the annual day of judgment for Israel or the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. It's the day when they ritually cleansed the Old Testament sanctuary. But Miller made a mistake. He didn't see that connection. And even though the Bible says, no man knows the day or hour he thought it was talking about the second coming. Now, in his defense, he wasn't trying to make money, he wasn't trying to sell books, he wasn't trying to take advantage of people, so I want to give credit where credit is due. He made a mistake, but it was actually an honest mistake, and even though it did lead to one of the biggest religious disappointments in American history. Thousands of people believed him, and so, of course, there were lots of people waiting for Jesus to come on October twenty-second, 1844. And it was devastating, humiliating. Those people, they called the Millerites, they had to endure a lot of mockery and ridicule as they waited. People started telling stories about the Millerites, trying to make fun of them. They said, hey, we saw the Millerites putting on white ascension robes and waiting on rooftops for Jesus to come. And it was hard to be a Millerite. And if it was hard to be a Millerite before the disappointment happened, it was absolutely horrible the day after. It was an honest mistake, but it was still a mistake, and it was devastating. In fact, so many people were crushed by Jesus' apparent failure to return that it came to be known as the Great Disappointment. And this movement was so widespread that you can't just write it off as a tiny sect out in the woods somewhere. This was not a backroom cult. It was a mainstream movement that spread from America to other parts of the globe. So the disappointment was profound. It involved a lot of people. And what's really curious about this whole story is just how closely a passage in the book of Revelation appears to mirror their experience— And I think it's important that we look at this because it might just help you understand some of the disappointments in your life. I mean, just listen to this, and I think you'll be able to see why the Millerites thought this passage was powerful. Revelation 10, verse 8. "'Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, "'Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land.' So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. And he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. Now, let me pause there for a moment because John is actually alluding to an Old Testament passage from the book of Ezekiel. John is told, eat a scroll. And that comes from Ezekiel 3, where God tells Ezekiel, here, eat this scroll and then go to the house of Israel and speak. So, Israel, uh, Ezekiel rather, eats it and it's as sweet as honey in his mouth. The scroll was a symbol of the word of God. Ezekiel was supposed to digest God's word, absorb it, and then go preach it to the nation of Israel. And in Revelation 10, you have the same language. John is supposed to eat a little scroll and it was going to be sweet in his mouth, but bitter in his stomach. And that meant a lot to the Millerites. It meant a lot because the little scroll in John's vision was open. It wasn't sealed. And they noticed at the end of the book of Daniel, the angel says, Daniel, I want you to seal this book till the time of the end. In other words, there was a pretty good chance that that little scroll was actually the book of Daniel, which had finally been opened, and it was the source of their hope. And what's interesting is just how many people were actually studying Daniel in the 19th century. It wasn't just the Millerites, not by a long shot. After thousands of years, and especially after the Dark Ages, people were suddenly studying Daniel and understanding it. So when the Millerite Christians thought that Jesus was coming in 1844, the words of Daniel, that little book that was now open, it seemed like honey in their mouths. But when Jesus did not come, it was bitter in their stomachs. So they really took that passage to heart. They suddenly understood that Christians do make mistakes. They misunderstood prophecy. And sometimes what you hope for, what you hope would be a good experience, can turn sour. And then they noticed at the end of the chapter, the angel says, you must prophesy again. In other words, the work of preaching wasn't finished. Jesus didn't come because it wasn't time. Not till the gospel has been preached to every nation. Now, obviously, you and I are not Millerites, but the principle does apply. From the day I became a Christian, I've been waiting for Jesus to come. And there have been times when it looked like world events were finally lining up, like we would see Jesus coming any day now. But then the tensions die down, events peter out, and here we are, still here. But you know, this also applies when it's not the second coming. Maybe you've come to a point in your life when you finally dared to hope that things were going to go your way. You thought that you were finally going to get a break. You thought maybe you'd get a promotion, or a raise, or the recognition that you deserve, or the love that you crave so badly. Whatever it is, there are moments when it seems like God's about to bless you, and then it doesn't happen. So what in the world do you do with that? Well, I'll be back in just a moment to talk about it.
1: Are you searching for answers to life's most difficult questions? Answers to help you make sense of the things that are happening right now in your life? Answers to the deepest questions in life like, can God really forgive me? Guilt and shame can be terrible burdens to carry and can leave us wondering if God really can love us and accept us. Are you wondering if there really is a chance for true happiness in this life? If there is a secret to living a happy, contented life in a world of uncertainty? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's most challenging questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number, 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website, or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. You'll find answers in guides like, Does my life really matter to God? And, From guilty sinner to forgiven saint. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides as the major themes of the Bible come to life. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com. Back in
0: 1844, there were tens of thousands of Christians waiting for Jesus to come, and of course, He didn't. And He didn't come because the work of preaching the gospel is not finished. And He didn't come because we don't know the day or hour of Christ's return. But it doesn't mean those people weren't sincere. In fact, the more I read about them, the more convinced I am that they were on the right track, except for their date setting. For the most part, they were sincere, born-again Christians who made a big mistake. It's kind of like John the Baptist, who spent his life being ridiculed by the religious authorities because he was out in the desert preaching about the coming kingdom of Messiah. And then when Jesus comes, he suddenly finds himself in jail awaiting execution. And according to the Bible, he gets a bit confused, and he sends a message to Jesus saying, Are you really Messiah? It's perfectly understandable, because God's kingdom didn't play out the way that John expected. He thought he'd take his place next to Jesus in the kingdom. He thought that Israel was about to come into her own. He thought that things were about to get better because the son of David had finally come. But John misunderstood his own preaching. He confused Christ's first coming and his second coming. He knew the promises of God, but he misapplied them. And honestly, that happens with lots of us. We read the Bible and we see all sorts of promises—prosperity, peace, health, happiness. But at the same time, we kind of overlook Jesus' warnings that we're going to suffer before he returns. We take what God has promised in the long run and we try to bring it into the present— And that can lead to confusion and heartbreak. But you and I shouldn't forget in Hebrews chapter 11 that the Bible says none of God's people have received the promise. Not yet. Not Moses. Not Abraham. Not me. Not you. It's still coming. And God asks us to be patient. But you know, eager anticipation isn't the worst problem you can have. I mean, at least you're still eager. At least you still want to go home. After almost two decades in the Paris airport, the French authorities finally let Mr. Nasri go live in Paris. Look, this is ridiculous, they said. You've been here long enough. Just pick up your stuff and go. So he packs up, he walks to the door of the airport, and when the doors open, he experiences the first fresh air he's experienced in a decade and a half, and he panics. So he goes back inside the airport and he lived there of his own free will until 2006 when he got too sick to stay there and they moved him to a shelter. But imagine that. Stranded, uncomfortable, for nearly two decades, and then when you have freedom, you refuse to go. Imagine being in the airport so long that you think it's your home. That's a worse problem than wanting to go. It's a far worse problem. You don't want to lose your passion. You don't want to lose your sense of longing. You don't want to stop being homesick for heaven. But that's exactly what many people are doing now that we're in the 21st century. The great disappointment came and went more than 150 years ago. And now even Christians are starting to treat this world like it's home. We put down anchors. We actually lose the desire for the kingdom of God. But think about this. Your cheese basically has to slide off the cracker if you want to live in the airport because that's not a home. It's not designed as a home. It's a temporary shelter. Think about this. If the airport is comfortable, something's wrong. Try thinking about our world like a major airline hub all socked in by snow. That's our world as we rebelled against God. Everything came to a halt. All of God's plans had to be put on hold. And you and I are now in the winter storm that's holding up the universe. And the planes are late, the lineups for de-icing are horrendous, and the seats are not comfortable. Nothing is the way it's supposed to be in this world, and now it's starting to feel like you will never get home. And the waiting goes on and on and on, to the point where half the passengers in the room are getting irritated, angry, and despondent. For almost 2,000 years, Christians have been saying Jesus is coming back. The early Christians said it as the Romans tried to wipe them out. The faithful Christians of the dark ages, the ones who refused to compromise, they said, Jesus is coming. The American revival preachers of the 1700s and 1800s said it. My grandparents and great-grandparents said it. And today, Christians are still saying it. But as the storm keeps raging, some people are losing hope. They're starting to forget this is not our home. This is a waiting room. This world, even though we have to be productive, even though we have to be part of this world— It is not our final destination. We are in the waiting room. This is the gate area. So what I want to encourage you to do at any cost is hang on to your boarding pass. Never throw it out. God's promise is solid. Jesus came the first time exactly on schedule, and he's going to come the second time. So do not, do not give up your seat remember how the book of hebrews describes all the heroes of the faith over thousands of years how it says they all died without seeing the promise and then it says they board the plane with us refuse to believe that we're never going to live never ever give up hope jesus is coming you keep reading the flight plan you read your bible Ask us for the Discover Bible course. It will give you the hope that you need to push through until our plane finally pushes back from the gate. Until next time, I'm Sean Boonstra. You've been listening to The Voice of Prophecy.
1: Are you searching for answers to life's most challenging questions? Answers to help you make sense of the chaos in today's world? Answers to the deepest questions in life like, How can I know that Jesus was real? Was he more than a man, and how do I even know the stories of his time on earth are true? How can I know that the Bible is something that I can believe today? And questions like, if the Bible is true, well, what happens next after this life? Is there really a heaven? And in this world of uncertainty, you might be wondering, is there actually a chance for true happiness in this life? Disappointments like illness and loss of employment, can hang like clouds over our lives. Life's daily routine challenges can be overwhelming, and even the things that once made us happy can begin to seem empty. Is it really possible to have a happy, contented life in such an uncertain world? Well, if you're searching for answers to these and other of life's biggest questions, we are here to help. The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at our toll-free number 888-456-7922 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online at our website, BibleStudies.com or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. At BibleStudies.com, you'll find answers in guides like A Second Chance at Life and Does My Life Really Matter to God? Answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. The major themes of the Bible come to life as we study together guides like When Jesus Comes for You and From Guilty Sinner To Forgiven Saint. At BibleStudies.com, you will find the Discover Bible Guides in nearly 50 languages, including Spanish, Japanese, Tagalog, and Russian. Now, this is a great resource for the family member or friend that you know is looking for answers but struggles with English. At BibleStudies.com, click on the interactive world map and find the language that you're looking for. And we have lessons just for the kids in your life. Your kids will love KidZone at BibleStudies.com. They'll enjoy the colorfully illustrated stories and interactive lessons in the 14 KidZone Bible Guides. And while you're online, be sure to visit us at VOP.com. At VOP.com, you'll find audio archives of this program, the latest ministry news, and resources to help you dig deep into God's Word. Begin your journey to discover answers to life's deepest questions and log on today to BibleStudies.com.